So as I mentioned, we're going to begin a series in 1 Peter. And I imagine that by the time we're finished with 1 Peter, your Bible's going to flop open very easily to that section of Scripture. Because we're just going to come back to it over and over and over. I have a way of laying out the messages and the number of weeks and months that it'll take me what I think will be to, to preach through a text. And then our staff knows that uh, it's usually me slowing it down. I'll say, well, I'm going to do these 10 verses. And then when I get to studying and writing, I'm like, nope, I'm only going to do these two. And I'll do the rest later. And it just kind of stretches out. So, But that's okay. It's a great letter. It's written by a great preacher, a great friend of Jesus Christ, a co-minister with him. And it is certainly one that has been inspired by the Spirit of God that is alive. It's living, and it will speak to us just like it spoke to those who first read it back in the uh, first century. So I want to spend some time today just kind of recapping the life of Peter. Now, I'm not going to be able to hit all the the high points uh, and certainly not the details, but I just want to give us a broad perspective so that as we start studying the details of the letter, uh, we will know who wrote that and why it's important that we understand life that Peter lived. So let's look to John chapter 1 verse 35 and we'll read a few verses here just to get us introduced to him. Now the next day again John was standing with his two of his disciples. Let me, this is where we were last week. This was the Easter message where Jesus was baptized. It was the foreshadowing of what was going to come, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is a continuation of that passage. And John is in, in that same area with two of his disciples. So we think mostly when we're reading about disciples, we're thinking about the disciples of Christ. But John had disciples as well. And we're going to see some of those disciples actually move from John and go over and become disciples of Jesus. And John was perfectly satisfied with that. He's purposely content with that because he recognized his ministry was as a forerunner to the ministry of the Son of God. And so he was very, very agreeable for that to happen. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Man, what if we have been there and heard that? Uh, we just sang about the Lamb of God. Imagine when John proclaimed that. And two of the disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That would be about 4 p.m. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to see Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Man, if you're one to underline your Bible, here is where you ought to underline. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Petros, which means rock. It means Peter. Now, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were from Bethsaida. And you can see on the screen behind me uh, where that is. It's, it's at the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I know it's a little bit hard when you're looking at Google Map. Uh, and you didn't put in the Google search to find where you're going. But that is the, the north central point part of Israel. And that little dark blob there in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. 
and on the northern shore you'll find Capernaum and just to the east of that you'll find Bethsaida. Now these brothers were from Bethsaida but they really grew up in Capernaum. That's where they were when they were in the industry, the fishing industry, and they fished all along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. They were in business together, a fishing enterprise, if you will, along with their good friends, James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. And so here these four guys have the, the uh, Northern Shore Fishing Company, or whatever it is that they called it, and they just uh, worked those those waters and, and they would go over to Magdala and they would have the, the fish salted there and uh, or maybe they were just the wholesaler. I don't know all the business that they had. All I know is that they were in business together, the four of them. When Andrew heard John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, he was watching and maybe, I don't know this, but maybe he even participated in a baptism of repentance. I don't know. If he was there the day that Jesus was baptized and he heard the Father speak, this is my son, I'm well pleased. I don't know if he was there that particular day. I have a, a feeling that he was because he was there the next day. Because as Jesus approached John in that area on the next day, John pointed him out as the Lamb of God. And those are big words. He is the one who will take away the sins of the world. For all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, he would be the one who would wash their sins away. And aren't we grateful that Christ washes our sins away? And not only does he wash our sins away, somebody better say hallelujah to this, he will give you his righteousness. I don't just need my sins washed away. I need to be able to stand before God the Father holy. And the way to do that is to have Christ clean out what is unholy and credit me, credit you with what is righteous. Glory be to God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Because God requires righteousness. And we couldn't manage it. And so Christ came and in his sacrifice and in his resurrection, he takes away sin and he gives righteousness and declares us that before the Father. And I'm so grateful for that. Man, we need to recognize who we are in Jesus Christ and live out that truth. Live it out with the power of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. So Andrew eagerly finds Simon. He says, we have found the Messiah. Now what does that tell you? If you've, been, if you've found the Messiah, what does that tell you about what they've been doing? They've been looking for him. They've been longing for him. They've been seeking God for him and begging that God would bring the Messiah. Can, can you and I just come to a place in our lives today that we do the same just on this side of the resurrection and we just plead with God to send the Messiah again. Let the Messiah come and return for his church. Let him gather the saints together, meeting him in the air. Let the trumpet sound soon, Lord. Just having an holy anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. And that's where these guys were. So Andrew and Simon were brothers. They were business partners. But most importantly, they were Christ seekers. So you have two sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon and James and John. And they make their livelihood on the Sea of Galilee. Now the word sea is a little bit distracting for us because when we think about the word sea, we're thinking about large mass saltwater bodies. 
this is a picture that I took uh, when we were on Mount Arbel, and it's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. If you want to take that picture, go with me March the 19th of 2023. Uh, that trip is being planned. The website is being shaped up right now, and hopefully in a few days I can get that out for you. But I just am overlooking the Sea of Galilee along with our group, and I, I was just blown away by this image. Because for the first time, all that I've been reading in the scriptures and studying through all my classes and all that stuff, it sort of just was an aha moment. I got the spatial concept of that whole terrain where Jesus had been ministering. Because I could look across and see the other side over at Jordan. And I could envision Jesus there on the northern shore saying to the disciples as they got in the boat, let's go to the other side. And I could see where the other side was. And I could look over to my left and I could see where Capernaum is. And I could see where Bethsaida is. And I could see on up north Israel towards the Golan Heights. And I could see Mount Moriah and other places all around. It was a great image. But this, this gives you a little bit of a perspective about what the water is. So the Sea of Galilee is what is called today Lake Tiberias or maybe Lake Galilee. And it's a lake because you and I have language that's different than the Hebrews who had one word for a body of water, which is translated sea. But you and I know a lake is fresh water and it's surrounded by land. And so this is a lake. Uh, it's about 13 miles from north to south and about 8 miles from west to east. If you were to put the water together over at Weiss Lake, it would be about the same volume as the Sea of Galilee. So it gives you an idea of the size that we're talking about here. So these guys were working that area. Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian back in the day of the first century, he actually wrote that there were 230 boats that worked, fishermen's boats who worked the, the Sea of Galilee. And here Peter and Andrew and James and John were among those who were working those waters. Now, the brothers work throughout the year. It's not like fishing for us. Uh, fishing for us is, I've got a little discretionary time. Let's go on the river or let's go to the pond and let's, let's fish a little bit. We'll have fun. No, no. Listen, this is year round. Heat of the summer, cold of the winter, day, night. It didn't matter. These guys, this was their livelihood. And it was rough work. It was difficult and tiresome. And the Evening they were fishing. Through the night was where most of the time they were fishing. And in the daytime when the sun was bearing down, they were mending and cleaning and washing and drying nets. Nets weren't like what we have today which are made of nylon and can last a long time. No, their, their common thread was linen. Anybody have on linen today? I don't want to embarrass her, but my wife has on linen slacks today. And when she said something to me about her linen slacks, which wrinkle very easily this morning, man, I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, it reminded me, oh, that's the netting material that they would use when they're fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, linen is, is, is not really a strong thread, is it? So it would rot very quickly if it stayed in the water and stayed wet all the time. So in the heat of the summer, in the heat of the day, they're pulling those nets out, they're mending them, they're fixing them, and they're laying them out to dry. And they're tying cork to the top of them, and they're drilling holes through rock 
so that they can tie the weighted rocks to the bottom of the net. And so night, in the daytime, much of their time was spent working. Now, sains, those sane nets that would be cast into the water from boats would run parallel to the shoreline, usually a few hundred yards off the shore. And these nets were often 20 feet high. So from the top where the floats are of the cork down to the rock-weighted area at the bottom of the net was about 20 feet for many of them. And they could go for a few hundred feet. And they would let those nets out by their boats and run parallel to the shoreline. And then they'd bring the ends to the shore. And here these really strong uh, husky guys would start bringing those nets ashore, hoping to catch what they could catch. Now, having ministered in that region, Jesus had seen that. Because when those guys are bringing the nets to shore, you know what they're doing? They're keeping good fish and they're tossing bad fish. Which ones are the bad ones? It's the ones without fins and scales. You've got to have both fins and scales, according to the law of Moses, in order for it to be kosher and be eaten. I hate to say it, but Jewish people would not be eating at top of the river. And that just makes my heart sad for them. How about you? So they're tossing out the bad ones, they're keeping the good ones, and I just see Jesus watching these guys, because this is the region where he ministered oftentimes in, the, in Galilee. And he watched those fishermen, and later on in his ministry, he would use this common practice of fishermen, just like Peter and Andrew. And he said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted out sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. Man, what words those are. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a major truth that all the world needs to understand. And so Jesus took a very simple illustration that was very common in that region and he says this is what it's like. You see these guys sorting out good fish and bad fish? One day it's going to happen of every person on the planet. And he's telling them, you need to know that because the decisions you make today impact that day. And you need to be aware of that. So Andrew and Simon's harvest usually consisted of three fish. They're the main ones that are there in those waters. It's a, a biny fish. It's sort of like a carp, a real bony fish, not one that we would want to eat probably. A small fish. Uh, which you and I would call sardines because Magdala is just around the corner to the west. And Magdala, even to this day, uh, all the archaeologists will show you the places where the fish markets were and the salt uh, pits were and the fish were loaded in there and they were salted down to preserve them. The small fish were sent to Magdala that they might be salted. But musk was the fish of choice. And it was a fish that actually would grow up to three pounds. It would be like a tilapia to, to us. It's in the tilapia family. Uh, in fact, if you go to Israel and you eat Peter's fish, which is what they call it, it will be that must fish. And they will usually cook it whole. Again, my wife, 
Didn't like that the eyeball was staring at her when she was eating that fish. But it's the way to eat that fish. You just kind of pull it off. Anybody eat catfish like that? Just pull it off. Well, shoot, you've never really eaten fish then, have you? You don't even know what you're eating. What you're eating doesn't even look like fish, does it? But anyway, that's the way they would eat that and uh, certainly the way that you and I will enjoy it together if we get to in this life. If not, we'll do it in the life to come, perhaps, if the Lord's willing. So in Luke 5, a large crowd is gathered where Jesus was on the shore by the lake one day and he steps into a boat. There's two boats out there. He steps into one of them because that boat is empty. Because Andrew and Simon Peter are mending their nets. So they're sunning them on the shoreline. The boat's empty. Jesus steps into it. He just kind of pulls out a little bit because the crowds have pressed in pretty firmly against him. And he, the one who makes the actual water that he's standing in, knows that there is a great effect, a broadcast effect uh, for a voice. By the way, when you're running down the river in your pontoon and you're talking about the people in their house that you're driving by, they can hear you. It's the way God made water so that it just moves the sound waves. And Jesus knew that as well. So he's standing there on the boat of Simon Peter and Andrew and he's teaching. And when he's finished teaching, he says to them, now guys, jump back in the boat and head on out there and go catch some fish. And Peter says, no, uh, we've been fishing all night and we didn't catch anything, nothing. We just, just spent all this time mending and drying the nets. This is what he's thinking. We, we went all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless, because you told me to, I'm going to go out there. And when he did, do you remember this narrative? When he does, there is so much fish that he has to call out to James and John, get in your boat and come help us. Because this, this load is massive. Now, that's pretty cool. But what I really like is their interaction with Jesus, specifically Simon Peter. Because after that, Simon Peter saw what happened and he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In other words, he has recognized this is the, this is the one who created it all and sustains it all and commands it all. And you need to get away from me because I am a sinner. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, catch this now, pardon the pun. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. There's a shift that's going to happen. Now, there's another time that this miracle happens. This is at the beginning of it. This is where Jesus is calling Peter to come alongside of him and be commissioned with him to communicate God's word, God's kingdom to all the people of, of Israel. But it happens again over in John 21. Uh, after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and remember in the, in the mock trials that were going on, those illegal trials that uh, Jesus was forced to participate in, uh, Peter was standing outside and on three separate occasions he denied knowing Jesus. Remember that? Uh, to one little girl, uh, to some servants of the high priest, some officials of the high priest, three times he denies him. 
And um, he was so cut to heart once he recognized what he had done. He, he, he was just over. He was just done. And so um, he told the disciple friends, he said, I'm just going fishing. I think what he was saying is I'm going back to my old life. I'm just going back to what I know. I, I'm so, so put out with all this, with myself and with all that has transpired. I'm just going fishing. You remember that? They fished all night. And when the morning sun was rising, they saw somebody on the shoreline. And he bids them, you caught anything? Hey, children, have you caught anything? Next thing you know, Peter's on the shore. And the disciples are there with him, and there's a, a fire that's going. It's a coal fire, just like a coal fire that Peter had warmed his hands and body on the night that he had denied Jesus. And Jesus is there bidding him to come. And that miracle took place then too, because Jesus said, you hadn't caught anything? Put your net on the other side of the boat. <laughs> they caught 153 fish that day. I think all must. About three pounds apiece. They were ripping the nets apart. It's just amazing how Jesus just pulls all that together. So I think what he's doing here is that he is drawing men unto himself who he will multiply in, in great discipling. And he will advance the kingdom of God all over the world. He's still doing that today. He's still doing that today. That's why you and I are here. We're not here for the music. We're not here for the preaching of, in and of itself. We're here for God to bring transformation to us, to walk us through his word, to sharpen us, to call us to certain tasks and duties and missions and to do them effectively unto Christ. So working as fishermen, it was challenging, no doubt. It required much of Andrew and Simon. It took patience, endurance, strong determination, stamina to fish the waters of northern Galilee. And it would take a whole lot of grit to run a business in and of that day. And Jesus uses that kind of backdrop in Peter's life as a fisherman to say, I'm going to make you a fisherman of men. I'm going to make it so that you'll fish after men. So like fishermen need to change their nets to catch certain fish. Sometimes they use a circular net, sometimes they use a same net. So Peter and the disciples would learn to adjust their strategies in order to move people towards Christ Jesus. Those same traits that they had as fishermen were going to be needed and resourceful in the kingdom of God. Patience, endurance, determination, stamina. However, no strategy and no personal characteristic compares to being obedient to the commands of Christ and being empowered by His Spirit. And Peter would know all those things that he had as a fisherman were going to be good and useful in the kingdom of God. But really what he needed was the command of Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit of God dwelling within him. And he walked in that. He learned to obey Christ's command. Even if he was fatigued, even if it was futile seemingly because they had fished all night, he learned to obey Christ's command. And in so doing so, he was a mighty man for the kingdom of God, such that today we marvel at him and want our lives to be like him. He learned that being a rock in this life and ministry requires much more than eagerness and determination. Being rock solid requires Jesus' transforming work. 
And that's what Jesus was pointing to in the very beginning when his brother introduced him as Simon. Jesus said, no, 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 you're going to be Cephas. You're going to be a rock. I love that transforming work that Christ was calling out to him. This is what he was going to do. He was going to transform him. Such a life needs God-given faith that's firmly planted in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And Peter would have that faith that had been given to him by God. So Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, was one of the highlights. But there were a lot of highlights that we could read about in Peter's life. He witnessed Jesus walking on the stormy waters of that Sea of Galilee one night. Remember this? They see him and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. Then they recognize it's Jesus. And Peter says, won't you, won't you call me to come out to you? And Peter actually walks on water as he's looking to Jesus. Man, what a highlight that must have been. Or another highlight would be, obviously, when he watches in astonishment as Jesus Christ in his human form transforms, is transfigured into his glorious form, and he talks to Moses and Elijah on the mount. Imagine that highlight. Or the highlight of hearing Jesus speak about his death and burial and resurrection. Heard him speak it with his own words. Or a highlight of the night of his arrest Jesus says to Peter, why don't you come with me? Draw near with me because this is of urgent matter. Stay awake, pray, be alert. He drew him with him into that holy moment of prayer in in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a highlight. But in those highlights also includes faulty faith and wicked words and actions that just go amiss. He actually took his eyes off Jesus when he was walking on that water and he began to sink. And when he saw Christ be transfigured and heard him speak to Moses and Elijah, he put those two men on the same plane as Jesus. How faulty is that? And when Jesus talked to him about his impending death, it was Peter who said, don't talk like that. It's not going to happen that way. And who was actually used as a mouthpiece for the devil himself. And he lazily slept that night rather than being watchful in prayer with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when the Jews and the Romans falsely tried the Savior a few hours later, it was his courage that faltered, and Peter denied him. So the Lord, though, remained faithful to him. His love was still given to him. Jesus still saw Peter as a friend. He still saw him as a co-minister. Through the highs and the lows, he consistently reconciled, restored, and redirected Peter's ministry and life as needed. So even though Peter often spoke too soon and proved impulsive at times in ways that were very contradictory to Christ himself, Jesus affirmed him over and over again. In Matthew 16, Jesus foretold that Peter would be an instrument that God would use to establish the church. Following his resurrection, Jesus specifically said, send word to Peter, I will meet him in Galilee. And Jesus provided miracles of catching fish with Peter both at the beginning of his ministry and at the tail end of his ministry. So when Peter faulted, Jesus still went out of his way to correct him, forgive him, restore him, recommission him, and redirect him. And if that's the way of Jesus, is that that not the way you and I ought to be? 
So there are going to be people that fail. You and I are going to fail. Jesus is the same way towards us. And when other people in our life fail, we ought to do the same that Jesus is doing. How can we help this person by forgiving them, reconciling them, restoring them, redirecting them? How can we love them in that way? Peter was just not the same following the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As I mentioned to you, one day there they are and that final miracle takes place as Jesus says, drop your nets on the other side and catch 153 fish. They pull it ashore. Jesus is going to cook them breakfast and provide for them. And while that coal fire is burning and they're warming and just in awe of the presence of Christ, Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And of course, every time Peter assures him of his love, and Jesus responds back to him, well then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You know what he's doing there? He's letting this truth settle into Peter. I've called you. I will transform you. You who were once Simon, that burly guy, that guy that's impulsive, that guy that's hot-tempered, that guy, I'm making you into a rock. Huh. Jesus is making you into a saint. He's already established sainthood in your life, already taken away your sin, put in his righteousness, declared you to be that way, given you his nature, all that you used to be prior to knowing Christ is being transformed, both by the command of Christ and by the nature of the Spirit that now dwells in you. And you've got to press towards that. Be who Christ has called you to be. Then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came to indwell and empower the disciples of Christ. And Peter, who was now restored and transformed by Christ, became a commissioned, empowered man that day the rock stood to speak to the crowd that had gathered at Pentecost, as Pentecost had taken place. And he concludes this amazing message that he preached with these words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, Peter was standing on a rock of faith, wasn't he? He was standing on the rock of Christ that had brought transformation to his life and the empowerment, that solid empowerment of the Spirit of God so that as he spoke God's word and message, people were transformed. So as we talk about Peter's life in the coming months, we're going to have many opportunities to reflect on his life. But there's five quick lessons that I want to point your attention to. So if by chance you have zoned out, zoned back in, and let me just drill these five very quickly. They're in the handout so you can come back and chew on them a little bit. Like God sovereignly linked the brothers and friends, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, 
He has divinely ordered the people in our lives. It's not by chance that you have the friends and the family, the neighbors around you, your co-workers. God is divinely working, sovereignly working in all those relationships. And I can tell you, he means those relationships to be authentic and meaningful. So your family, your friends, those you work with, those you serve with, those we worship together with, God wants those relationships to be meaningful relationships, authentic relationships. And that he wants those relationships to be purposeful, seeking to lead one another in Christ, his salvation, his word, his will, and his way. All right, so are you engaging in those relationships in a way that you're helping draw people closer to Christ? Are you having spiritual conversation with the people in your lives? Are you talking about the things that you read in the morning, purposefully reading in the morning and asking God, let you communicate that to somebody else? If you're ruminating on biblical truth in the night, are you talking about it in the day with anybody? Here's, here's what Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John were doing. They were seeking God. They were seeking the Messiah and they were looking for him actively. And when they found him, they walked with him together. And you and I need to have strong relationships like that where family purposes to engage each other in spiritual conversation and mentorship and discipleship. Neighbors and friends and co-workers do the same thing. Who in your life is investing in you in that way? Who are you investing in in that way? Secondly, God created mankind to be productive. Therefore, he honors people who work honorably like Peter. So, Jesus affirmed Peter's work as a fisherman. Uh, first, he takes that, that work that he does as a fisherman. He says, oh, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And he elevates his work, doesn't he? And uh, he multiplies the benefit of his work. I mean, it's one thing to be a, a fisherman. You know that you're going to go sometimes out there and you're going to catch some fish. And sometimes you're going to go out there and you're not going to catch some fish. Sometimes you're going to catch a few. Sometimes you're going to catch a lot. And that's just the way it is with fishermen. But Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to bless your work. I'm going to multiply the, the reward of your work. You've told all night. Now I'm about to reward that. I think it's just part of Jesus elevating Peter and elevating his work. Why do I think that? Because God put work into place for mankind before mankind sinned. I know it's completely foreign from what the world tries to tell you about heaven, but heaven is going to be full of glorious work. Work that you step back from and you say, glory to God for that. It's going to be a work without compromise. It's going to be a work without thorns and thistles. It'll be a work that you'll be able to complete to the fullness that God has given you the opportunity to do. And we're going to be fully satisfied in that. Man, I looked around yesterday after all the grass had been cut, after the edging had been done, the weeding was over with, and I'm looking out there and saying, wow, that's good. That's good work. That's all to the glory of Christ. So Peter has his work elevated by Christ and he uses his work even as an illustration to teach us about the great things of the kingdom of God. God loves work and God is always at work. Jesus said those very words. My father is always at work and so am I. 
God loves work and he loves productivity and he gives us the opportunity to do that. So God is elevating that work in Peter's life. Number three, for those who faithfully seek Christ, he sees them as he intends them to be. Are you with me in your handout? Put a big star by that one. That's good news right there because the enemy is constantly harping and hounding on me about every sin that I've ever committed and those that I haven't committed but I still want to commit. <laughs> He's like the accuser, isn't he? He's constantly hammering down on us, tempting us, calling us to sin. And when we do, he turns it around on us and he belittles us in the sin. And here's what, what I'm so grateful about Christ is that Christ is not seeing me in that sin. Christ is seeing me in the righteous gift that he has given to me and given to you. And he sees us as he intends us to be as saints of God. That's the reason why you read through the epistles. You're never called a sinner. You're always called a saint if your faith is in Christ. Because God is seeing you as he intends you to be. So Simon Peter is standing before him. And Jesus says, hey, no more, no more, Simon. You are rock. He ought to make a movie, shouldn't he? <laughs> you are rock. Why is he saying that? Not because of his personality, not because of his brute force. He's saying that because that's the way God intends him to be, and Christ is going to accomplish it for him. It's amazing. This man who is brazen, quick-tempered, rough, around the edge, I would say rough as a cob, hastily spoken, was seen and affirmed by Jesus as a solid man of faith. Incredibly, Jesus voiced what he was going to transform Peter to be. What a wonderful notion about our life in Christ. Next to the last, gospel ministry requires patience, endurance, determination, and stamina. But none of these equals the power of obedience to Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So yeah, Peter was a good choice, but he's a miserably falling short choice. So God needed to work in him and needed him to be obedient to his word and needed him to be empowered by his spirit. Then number five, like Peter. When saints sin, Jesus remains faithful, just, and loving to us, moving to reconcile, restore, and redirect us. Can I tell you as we close in that, that little power-packed sentence right there, that God, no matter what you're doing, no matter the sin that you've committed, if your faith is in Christ and you're longing for that holy walk with his spirit. You're going to trip, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, but God will not remove his spirit from you. Jesus does not withhold his forgiveness from you. The spirit of God's seal is not broken and validating you. Christ does not rescind his gospel message from you, nor the ministry that he's called you to. It just doesn't happen. He's not pulling away from you. He's moving towards you. I need to hear those words. You need to hear those words. You and I remain washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are forever children of God, gripped in the palm of Jesus' hand, never to be removed, and our names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Glory be to God. 
So God has predestined our salvation. Jesus has paid the debt of our sin, credits us with his righteousness, satisfies God's holy justice that is required. The Holy Spirit authenticates us, sealing us, writing our names down forever in heaven and bears witness that we are children of God. The way Paul said it, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to be done. And Peter is a good reminder of that. So Jesus reveals how he deals with followers who sin. He moves towards us. He reconciles us. He restores us. And he redirects us. And so maybe today, maybe today you've got that regret in your life. Maybe today you're in the midst of your sin or it's haunting you, the memory of it. Could I encourage you to take the words of God's scripture and just apply them over that? So you've got failure. Embrace that. Because Jesus has embraced your failure. He embraced it on the cross of Calvary and he died the full payment of that failure, that sin. God providing justice against your sin and against you through his own son. And he cleanses us of that. And he gives us righteousness and his holy nature. And now when we find ourselves given to the things of the flesh and sin, we're prompted. That is not who you are. You're a holy child of God. You're a saint of God. Now walk in that. Walk in the power of the Spirit. When you feel like... God has pulled from you. No, 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 that's the enemy's accusations against you. God is actually drawing near to you, correcting you, convicting you, bringing you out of that and into his glorious light, restoring you, reconciling you, redirecting you. Don't hang out in that sin. Don't let it hang around you. Let God do his work, just like he did with Peter. Now, which of those, just working back through those five, which of those stand out to you as God's message to you today? Which one of those do you need to embrace and say, God, I'm going to trust you for that truth. I'm going to trust you. Though I've spent my lifetime fruitless, I'm going to trust you that if this is true, It'll be like Peter dropping down the net on the other side and pulling in a catch he's never caught before. I'm trusting you. Now let me walk in that truth. God, as you pour out great grace and faith in our lives, I pray that the faith needed to walk differently by the transforming work of Jesus would be given. People receive it and walk in it. I pray if there's any sin in our lives, even now that we have been clinging to, we would immediately drop that, confess that to you, walk away from that, and choose your holy ways as you would restore us and reconcile us, redirect us, recommission us. And I pray in time that this transforming work of Christ's spirit on the cross, and Christ's body on the cross, and his resurrection, now his spirit given to us, would bring us to a place where we would have great effective ministry beginning today. And trusting you for it, that the individuals and the collectiveness of Meadowbrook would never be the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.